0: Climate change is not like that. Climate change is going to be a situation, I think, where we're looking at something with steady, continuous, for the foreseeable future worsening, and it's not clear where the end is. And I think that brings into play a different set of psychological responses.
1: That's British environmental campaigner George Marshall. George is a communications specialist and writer. He's the founder of Climate Outreach and is a specialist on climate change communications. He's the author of Carbon Detox, and don't even think about it, why our brains are wired to ignore climate change. George, who is in Australia at the moment to research a new book, was a guest at a webinar organized by Psychology for a Safe Climate. Welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Robert McLean, and I'm coming to you from Shepparton in Victoria, Australia, from the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I've been involved with the practical side of the climate conversation since the early 2000s. That's attending lectures and reading whatever I could find. And although the public interest has broadened as the years have passed, it became apparent to me a few years ago that much more needed to be said. And it was important, terribly important, that we were making much more noise. Unsure of what to do to reach more people, I decided to try my hand, or should I say more correctly, my voice at podcasting. And what you're listening to now is the result of those efforts. There appeared to be a great silence about the climate crisis, and this podcast is an effort by me to increase the volume of my voice and so help end that silence. Fortunately, it was not as silent as I had thought, as many other podcasters were beavering away and were attempting to alert the world to the climate crisis. And several months ago, I was found, so to speak, By Mark Spencer from the Climactic Collective. Music for this podcast comes courtesy of Music for a Warming World, a Melbourne based group, and you'll find a link to that group in the episode notes. I trust you'll enjoy this episode, and if you do, please feel free to share it with your friends. George Marshall is one of the most innovative thinkers I have ever encountered in the climate conversation. George was in Australia in 2015 for Melbourne's Sustainable Living Festival, and while there he was able to find one night when he could come to Shepparton and speak at an event organised by Slap Tomorrow. that's a Shepparton-based group that cares about climate change, and he was heard by about 70 people. It was a fascinating presentation. We thank George so much, even though this is long past the date. Let's have a listen now to what George said at last night's webinar. And last night was Tuesday, March 22.
0: The operating title for my new book is What Happens Next? And what I mean by that, by the way, that's not necessarily the title we end up with, is what, what, happens, what happens when climate change really starts barreling down on top of us? how are we going to respond? There's a we- range of ways that we could respond, but what do we know from the literature of psychology or past human experience that tells us how we will respond? And it's not going to be a one thing or another, it's going to be a range of different options. And I'd like to unpack that. Uh, don't even think about it. I explored the, the, the literature and I talk of a wide range of people on our psychological response to climate change. And the first thing that was clear was that it's not, is that it's complex. Climate change is inherently challenging for us. And it's not that, not that straightforward and not that rational. That rationally we should for the past 30 years have responded to this threat in a very straightforward way, which was in proportion to the scale and urgency of the threat. We should have said, right, this is really important, but if we take action now, we can avert future uh, future consequences. But we didn't. And there was a range of reasons why we didn't. Um, as Daniel Kahneman, who's one of the people I interviewed in the book, who's, as, as you know, as a kind of, is the is really the kind of founding father of cognitive bias study says um climate change is a bad combination of things for us it's it's in the future it's not here it's not here and now it's in the future it involves costs There are uncertainties and these are all things that tend to lead us towards delaying action and i'm afraid that has been the case i mean we've delayed action for a generation now we're picking up now but crikey we're we're moving we're moving slowly now of course once climate change starts hitting we are in a we're in a different some but now we're in a situation where those 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 avoidance strategies, those defense strategies, but it's not here and now it's uncertain becoming uh, less tenable. Still, people hold on to them because people shape their sense of climate change through the lens of worldview and uh, their own cultural bias. So there are still people who wish to hold on to that. But we're seeing a big shift in terms of the opinion research. People more and more are saying, no, it is here. I mean, that's, we've been one of the big shifts of the past five years. In every country, the large proportion of people says it's it's happening now. That's a big change. Whether they feel personally affected, well, that's still holding off. I mean, there's still a very strong tendency for people to distance the impact to say, well, it's going to have a bigger effect on other countries or on other people than themselves. Um, um, only in in only minorities of people, for example, in Australia think it's going to seriously affect them personally. That will change with time. Um, so... The question is, though, whether there are new forms of avoidance, uh, denial, which will start to, to come into, into play now. And the, the, the challenge of a book is to say, how might we respond to climate change in, let us say, 50 years' time? There certain, there's certain assumptions built into this question. The first assumption is that we are not going to suddenly turn this around. I, I am staggered and disturbed by the, by the dominant narrative which emerges from uh, the IPCC when the scientists talk about this and from the climate negotiations, which is basically unchanged, has been unchanged for the past 30 years, which is to say, yes, this is very serious, but we're not yet out of time. If we all pull together and we all take action now, we can still achieve our targets well. We're not going to achieve 1.5 degrees. It's not going to happen because when you look at the curve, we're up there. The only possible way of reaching 1.5—it's almost like falling off a cliff. It's—it would be—it would be like some global economic collapse. It's not going to happen. I will get some expert opinion for the benefit of a book, but I don't think we're going to reach two degrees either. I think, as I said, and don't even think about it—the opinion of a scientist I spoke to was that we were ultimately heading for four, and I think that's the case. I'm afraid. So I, it's a, it's an interesting form of futurology because normally futurology is saying what will happen in the future. What I'm going to say is, well, we know what's going to happen in the future. I'm not even in this book going to talk about climate impact other than to outline them. Uh, we know what the impacts are going to be. What interests me is in how are we going to respond to that. Now, um, one of the other operating principles on this, uh, and sort of like underlying thinking on this is that so far, a lot of the models for what climate change will be have made psychological assumptions. So the, when the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, puts out its, its climate change scenarios, those are all predicated on the assumption of a rational response. There's nothing in there which is completely weird or bizarre or, or, or disturbed or, or defensive, as we know humans are very capable of doing. They're all varying degrees of rational response. We either, we either move slowly or we move faster. And I think we have to challenge that assumption. And part of the aim of the book is to say, well, actually there's, there's a range of scenarios and they are, they are, they are much more complex than that. I guess the third operating thing, and I think this is really important, is to say that we can make mistakes if we assume that climate change is an issue similar to other major threatening issues we've faced and that therefore we can safely predict what human responses will be because it's not like other issues the primary source of difference is that this is not this is not restorative you know that we we one of the things i talked about in my in my book is that we, we see and shape the world through the form of, of socially constructed narratives. The narratives, the narratives which have dominated human culture and exist spontaneously across multiple cultures, in other words, they're, they're inherent to the, the, our psychology, the way that we see the world, is one of a challenge. We face a challenge, we face an enemy, we face a threat. We, we, that threat is a big, is a big fight. We take on that threat, maybe we have external help, we overcome the threat, and we restore the status quo. And in the course of doing that, we learn some lessons, but we also reaffirm the cultural you know, the cultural values. And this is a story which would appear in, whether you're re- looking at Grimm's fairy tales, whether you're looking at the or whether you're looking at indigenous cultures. This is a story which repeats itself. My problem with climate change is that climate change does not have a restorative component. Climate change is going to be very different, it's going to be a very different circumstance. We are used, we are culturally wired to situations where we face enormous obstacles, we overcome them, and we rebuild, we restore who we are. And there isn't a single major issue that we have faced. Well, please challenge any of this, by the way, and tell me that there is. But I don't think there's been a major, single major threat that we have faced as humans, that we have not had that option on. For example, the um, the um, Warsaw, the capital of Poland, was completely flattened by by Nazi bombing. They rebuilt it. They rebuilt it stone for stone, the same as it was. I mean, it, it's a it's a it's um it's a mock up, but uh, it was rebuilt. You know, human societies can face enormous suffering. Ukraine, for example, in the in the uh, in the Holodor, uh, Four million Ukrainians were starved by, by Stalin's um, agricultural collectivization program. That is an enormous level of suffering. But then there's new children, there's new generations, you rebuild, you, Ukraine, was in, Ukraine was looking in fairly healthy shape until recently. Now they're facing an enormous, overwhelming suffering, but they can still hold on to a narrative that they will go through this, they will fight this, but there's the possibility at some point down the line for restoration and renewal. But climate change is not like that. Climate change is going to be a situation, I think, where we're looking at something with steady, continuous for foreseeable future worsening and it's not clear where the end is. And I think that brings into play a different set of psychological responses. Now, there may be some technological techno fix which comes in which allows us to suck stuff out of the air and allows us to kind of somehow to restore things and put them back. And it's very interesting that a lot of but a, a, a lot is being invested in that story because of course that's the story that we hold on to in our culture enormous amounts of money being put into into the analysis of carbon capture and storage or um, or uh, removal or removal from the air the ipcc their predictions for uh, for achieving 1.5 degrees have built into all kinds of assumptions of technologies that don't exist. And I think we should call this what it is. It's a narrative. It's a story. It's, it's a mythological story. Now, that's not to say it's not possible, but that's what it is. It's a story which is applied as a form of psychological defense. And um, I said in my book that carbon capture and storage was a story. And it had to be seen as such. It's technology, it's an engineering solution, but it's a story because it exists so that the people who are utterly culturally and economically invested in fossil fuel production can say, we can keep doing this because of this thing over here. And they pump just about enough money into this thing in order to keep it alive and, and existing in their narrative. Similar, I think, with a lot of these things. So... Let's 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 call out the truth. I don't think that's going to happen. And therefore, what we're facing with here is not uh, is not something that can be overcome. By the way, they're still uh, talking about stories. There's still a lot of people who talk about overcoming climate change or winning against climate change or Boris Johnson, who's um, a fool by any measure, but he's a, a storytelling fool. Uh, was recently did a speech in which he talked about how we were going to defeat climate change because he fancies himself as some kind of Winston Churchill character, but it's not. Actually, the, the 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 analogy, if anything, is towards a is towards a degenerative disease, something which in, in which continues in its iterations to become worse. And if it's in Ukraine, it's not a matter of like overcoming the fight and then and then having some resolution to a war. It's like a situation where these bombs are going to keep dropping and dropping and dropping, and then there's more, and then there's more, and then there's more. So these climate impacts are going to be coming in again and again and again and more and more so. I'm I'm sorry, I'm not aiming with this to to depress you. I'm just pointing out I think this is a reality of the science. And the interesting question for us is how psychologically do people respond under conditions of constant maintained deterioration where looking ahead, they cannot see the end of it. So, let me, just, let, me just, um, let me just cover some of the ground on this. I want in this book, therefore, to answer these questions, to go far beyond the bounds of uh, the normal climate psychology or normal, normal climate thinking, and recognise there's a whole body of research and understanding out there that might answer these questions. I'm very interested in how humans respond individually or collectively to sustained and non-negotiable impact something where you can't see an end, you can't see a solution it just keeps happening and how human nature behaves under those circumstances and we know it can be competitive it can be collaborative there's lots of ways for people respond i'm interested for example in how how individuals uh, respond for uh terminal illnesses I think mean, there's a lot to be learned from the psychology of, of palliative care, for example. The different phases that people go through when they, face, when they face the inevitability. I have already raised in Don't Even Think About It, the, uh, the, the analogues between climate change and, and responses to climate change and, um, and mortality, mortality fear which I I keep flagging up whenever I get a chance to speak to psychologists, is an enormously undeveloped area of exploration because I think there's a lot, there's a lot of similarities there. And as I said, everybody I spoke to, including Professor Kahneman said, yeah, that's a pretty obvious one. Someone should look at that and no one has. So I want to go deeper into that and say, well, well, what is it when you see the inevitable destruction of everything? Now, maybe you believe, maybe you believe, you know, that mortality isn't the end of everything, but for a lot of people, they do. So when you're looking, when you're looking death in the face, when, when you're looking beyond that, how do you respond to that? Um, I'm interested historically in how we've responded to situations like this. I think there's a great deal of lessons in history. And I'm interested in things like addiction. And how addictive responses? And from like my, my initial conversations and reading, I tried to draw up a set of p- potential scenarios for how we might respond to climate change. And I'd like to share those with you. Then, what I'd love to do is I'd love to have your responses and your feedback. Tell me, I'm completely offline. Tell me any ideas, anything you have, because this is a wonderful opportunity to get the wisdom which is in in our virtual room. Um, so I've got I've got nine. I've got nine scenarios and in the book what I was thinking would be very interesting to do would be at the, at the kind of frontispiece for each one to write a little monologue to have somebody talking about what it's like to inhabit that scenario because the important thing about scenarios is these are states of mind again I go back to the point we know or we can we know what climate change will be like or what the impacts will be we don't know however the the, the mind frame that people hold. And mind, the important things about these different mindsets is they're completely self-justifying. We know that we know that humans we know that humans create these self-sustained uh, um, self-sustaining uh, worldviews, and then they do an assimilation bias where they start bringing in the information or the storylines, or restricting their social circles to, to and the, the information they receive from the outside world in order to sustain that worldview. So, let, let me run through some of these, some of these thoughts. First, the, so the, the, the first option here is cooperation. Humans are highly cooperative, Like the, the world is built out of cooperation. So, facing a deteriorating condition of the kind that climate change is, we cooperate. We, we 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 achieve our, our greater self. We may in fact actually really develop as a human species. We may move forward and find new ways of being and cooperation. And and we're living in a very different and interconnected world. And and that may that may be part of that. So we look at this. We go shit. We've got a problem. What are we going to do? Let's all pull together. Let's adapt as best we can. Let's reduce emissions. Let's cope with this as best we can. There's going to be some damage, but we can pull together. We're not going to be able to stop climate change, but we might be able to halt it or halt the progression of it and then deal the best what we can with that. And we need to move fast. Okay, <laughs> that's number one. So we like that one. That's the one we want. And I think it's important we map out the others to realize that that's something precious that is not to be taken for granted. And that is the one on which so many of the scientific and political models, as I said, are predicated on the assumption of that first one. And there's a lot of experience in human, in, in, uh, you know, there's a, lot, there's a lot in human experience which shows that's what people do. Or rather, that's what people do when they face a single challenge. So, like Rebecca Solnit wrote a wonderful book, for example, talking about how during earthquakes or during major climate disasters, people pull together. And we can see that. We can see that happening in Lismore now, the first time, maybe the second time. The question is, when you're in a situation where, you know, like, like you know, the bombs keep dropping or, or it just goes on and on and on, as far as you can see into the future, that doesn't stop. I wonder if people are so cooperative. But let's just hold for a moment that people cooperate and we come together and we find new ways of being. Right, that's number one. Number two would be what I call invention. That's a scenario where we think our way out of it. We don't just cooperate and, and find maybe new ways of being, but we we pull in our our inventive skills, our technical skills. That might be the one where we find ways of sucking stuff out of the air. The invention response is an elite response, by the way. It's one which requires and justifies a continuation of technical elites, capitalism, um, most likely. Um, it's a status quo argument. And many of my friends, even my, even my strongly left leaning friends, are somewhat resigned to the fact that maybe the only way we can dig our way out of, out of climate change is to, is to continue with a kind of corporatist capitalism, which has got us into this mess. So that, the invention one, you know, all, all of the big, you know, all of the, all of the Google guys, and Elon Musk and, and Bezos and all of these people love this one. Again, it's a narrative, remember. But maybe we can respond that way. And maybe the way we respond to climate change is we have, you know, we're all living in like air-conditioned air bubbles and, you know, it's an adaptation through technology. And remember, it's a leap because it's just, I'm afraid the collateral damage of invention is probably a lot of poor people die. And that's, there's an interesting psychological response by way to how do we respond psychologically to our sense of responsibility for the people who suffer in the course of the action we choose to take, <laughs> which is like the kind of the, 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 climate, the psychological collateral damage. The third one, these aren't, by the way, necessarily in, in, in final order, I call distraction. Distraction is a response where actually we don't deal with it at all. And that I find interesting. Now again, there's plenty of there's plenty of evidence for people in the past have responded in that way. I mean, uh, just one simple one um, was um, the way that under the under the, the um, under the worsting conditions in apartheid South Africa, that sport became like a national cult. That people invested huge amounts of attention and effort and focus into sport as a way to avoid the war, avoid what was going on. Uh, Stanley Cohen in uh, States of Denial, a book which had a lot of influence, uh, only talked in detail about that. But I'm also keenly aware of, of these little things. And this is just the beginning, mind you. These are tools of distraction, not not, not uh, tools of destruction, tools of distraction, where billions of dollars are going into psychologically grounded research into how to distract people. And remember, the big internet people, the big internet companies, their commodity is is your attention that's what they're fighting for is attention and they're going to do everything they can to get your attention and to hold it and i think as older people those of us on the call i can see are, are mostly older we um we don't recognize quite what is happening to younger people especially children with this it may not be as bad as we think but nonetheless so there's distraction i think distraction is one right number three um number four Uh, Responses of schism and blame. Blame, uh, people finding people responding through blame of saying they're the ones who caused this problem. Now, that might be an intergenerational one. I think that's going to be very powerful, potentially. That might be an intercountry one. It might be a class response. It's a very powerful and compelling narrative, which then has implications for for politics, for how people respond. It's an angry response. Like if we were to say, kind of like with kind of like Kubler-Ross, we could say, well, there's denial, there's anger. And an angry response is to say you ought to blame and to fight it out. Of course, it doesn't solve climate change necessarily. You know, distra- none of these do. Well, I'm now in the area of things which don't actually really deal with climate change, but are psychological responses. So I think schism and blame is an interesting one. And, and I think that we could see stuff also, that is also related to things like climate wars as well, where like over water wars, where water is diminishing. Yes, that's a climate change impact, but there's a psychological component, which is people respond to the climate change impact, not through cooperation or through invention, but through war. And I think that's definitely a possibility. Number five, and I think this is where it gets really interesting, is scapegoating. There's a lot of historical experience with how people have responded to um, insecurity and through crisis by scapegoating another group. Uh, It's, you know, in in the shorthand, I feel, is how you're going to respond to climate change shoot the gypsies. They haven't caused climate change, but you know what? They're weak, we're strong, we're going to shoot them. I mean, the Holocaust is in many ways like a response, to, is a response to a national crisis of insecurity. It's a psychological response. Now, a very interesting thing, and I think there's a lot of literature here which I haven't yet uncovered, but one of the things which started me thinking about this was a, very, was a, was a, was a paper that was talking about how the 17th century witch hunts were directly related to climate change. I mean, directly related, that the waves of climate change in what we now call the Little Ice Age, this medieval cold period, which was a, a form of climate change. It was caused by uh, volcanic eruptions, uh, solar cycles, mixed actually with deforestation was a major cause of it. Um, but Europe got very, very cold in these years. And but with each wave of this, there was an intensification of, of witch hunts. And in Germany, where these things were very intense, they actually created the witch hunts for specifically for what they called Vettemacherai, um, uh, which was a term called weather magic. The idea that the, the witches and in consort with the devil were changing the weather. And we just go, oh, that's just medieval. But of course it isn't, it's deeply human. And I would say that there's plenty of room for new aberrant forms of scapegoating around climate change powerlessness and picking on the powerless, blaming the victims. We're very, very good at that as humans. And I think that blaming the victims is entirely possible here. Imagine, for example, a situation where there is mass migration around climate change. Look at how readily human society could turn against those people and somehow blame them as we feel the burden of the guilt for what we've done. Number six, doubling down. Doubling down is an aberrant, uh, you know, is a, is a form of reactive denial, which is, co- which is common for addictive behaviors. And that's why I guess addictive behaviors are so interesting. When you're presented with the evidence for what you've invested in is wrong, you do not feel damaging or destructive. You do not face up to the reality of that. You intensify the behaviors for the destructive. And so, they, again, I'm just... This is. I'm in the book. I'll be drawing together all of the evidence for this, but there's an awful lot of that. I'm very interested also in the reflection of how that can behave, how, how that can manifest through groupthink. Um, I'm interested in the Abilene paradox, for example, where where entire societies can do things where individually the people don't believe in what they're doing, but collectively because they think everybody else is doing it, they all support it. I mean, in a way, climate change could be a bit like that. But I think plenty of opportunity for for and plenty, plenty of experience in the political domain of where politicians have done things which are wrong, and what they do is they just simply do more of it. So I said, people who are alcoholics respond to a challenge that they're alcoholics by drinking more, to show that because they can drink more, they're clearly not alcoholics. So I think there might be a lot of manifestation of that. So I can imagine, for example, that high-carbon behaviours could become um, fetishised as a form as a, as a form of uh, as a form of expression or form of rebellion, or whatever we might call it. Number seven, religiosity. religiosity could be in the form of existing religions. I mean, there's you know there's overwhelming, overwhelming experience, certainly for you know the past two thousand years of how of how a kind of intensified, intensified religion, and religious experience. I'm saying religion here as opposed maybe to spiritual. I think spiritual would fall under cooperation, but religion in the sense of organized mass movements of people around a very intensively asserted shared set of values um, is a response. And I call it religiosity, but I would also call political movements, intense revolutionary movements, political movements, a form of religiosity. Again, they're not dealing with climate change, they are psychological responses to it. And I think that's what makes them interesting and makes them potentially dangerous. So one obvious thing I would say is that I, I would definitely predict that responses to climate change could could involve an intensification of existing religions and maybe and maybe extreme forms of, of existing religions, maybe new religions, but maybe other forms of expression of the same religious imperative of something greater than yourself and of course spilling out of that, there's also a possibility for um you know for for extreme charismatic leadership as well which i think is also part of that religious experience right? Like looking up looking up to uh you know a, a, an iconic leader figure who is going to lead us out of uh you know who's going to lead us out of the wilderness who is going to save us i think it's part of that religious expression and the final one uh, number number eight is despair um and I think there's, I think there's a lot of, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in the Solar Style tone and and ben Albrecht's work. Um, I think it's the University of Queensland, right? Um, of looking at that kind of like sense of despair. I'm interested in exploring what despair looks like when it's when it's both individually and across societies, and how that and how that manifests. I'm interested, for example, in the sense of learned helplessness. Um, that under repeated burdens and repeated blows, people might actually just buckle and just curl up into a ball and just give up hope and say, I'm not going to deal with it. I've kept the ninth one. It's just a question mark, something that we, 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 we don't know. We can't know, both positive or negative, something which is, I mean, I think climate change is a transformative moment in the human experience. So I think let's keep the door open to the possibility of something completely unexpected, like, who could possibly have predicted, you know, 10,000 years ago that these little bands of hunter-gatherers could live in downtown Melbourne or even build downtown Melbourne? Who would possibly have thought that? So let, let's recognise humans are capable of amazing things, both, both destructive and constructive. So let's keep that question mark there. And I guess before we go into the discussion, I'm, not, I'm staggered by my capacity to, to speak, so to <laughs> is um I'm not suggesting it's either or for any of these. I think these are manifest already in various shapes and shapes and forms. And I think part of what's going to be interesting is to is to identify the things that are already up and running. And this is a clever thing with futurology of saying look here's the seed of this thing which is coming in the future. As I said, major things where they seem absolutely aberrant, like say for Holocaust were already present in the 1920s and could have been seen and predicted clearly and indeed present, you know, 50, 100 years earlier. And I think that we can quite reasonably identify some things. I think COVID has some very interesting lessons for us and certainly something that I love doing is getting deep into the analysis of COVID and saying, look, when COVID is the first time that since the for, since for Second World War, that huge, inter, huge inter- international transboundary issue of threats, and we see how people respond. Generally speaking, people are collaborative, which is a good sign. But also we can see bunches of people break away in all of these forms I've shown here. But we're not going to have a situation where it is like any. you wouldn't put our money on any of these. These are all going to be running at different rates, in parallel, in different places at different times, but the overall objective is to try and mark out the landscape. And the ultimate objective is not to depress the hell out of people and just say, oh my God, we're just doomed. But to say, let's recognise that there's some things here we need to be very, very alert to. We want to have this positive, constructive outcome, but let's be very alert to the first glimmerings of these other responses. Nip them in the bud.
1: Rather than Q&A, George just wanted a general conversation, a wide-ranging discussion about what happens next, as he was hoping to glean some information that he could use in his new book. George was hoping it would be a little like a kitchen table conversation, and that's exactly what he got. It was quite personal and intimate. Intimate because there was only 14 people, including George, who attended the webinar. Sadly, only 14 people. Yes, Only 14 people were one of the clearest thinkers, one of the clearest climate change thinkers in the world. Climate Conversations is published with the support of the Mark Spencer published Climactic Collective. And it's just one of more than 20 podcasts making up that collective. More about the collective and the associated podcast can be found at climactic.fm. Music for Climate Conversations is from the Melbourne-based group Music for a Warming World. You can find a link to that group in the episode notes. Responsibility for Climate Conversations rests with me. But you could help with the questions. And if there is something specific that needs addressing, but the question is not being asked of whom it should be asked please make a suggestion and send it to r.mclean7 at icloud.com. Earlier episodes of Climate Conversations can be found at the Climactic website. Simply search for climactic.fm. Go to the Climate Conversations artwork, click on that, and there you will find all the earlier episodes. Beyond that, in all this climate chaos, remember just a few things. Put your faith in genuine climate science. Also, action is the best antidote to despair, and that, I must add, is one of the drivers of this podcast. And remember, be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. That ends this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company, and until we talk again, please take care.